Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 66. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. And I'm Eden Klein. And uh, we're sitting in a rented U-Haul truck right now. Actually, we're stopped in some road construction, but we are having a bit of a road trip. Uh, we've picked up a big load of lumber. 2,200 square feet of... Uh, siding for the house. Yeah. So uh, we thought it would be fun to, uh, for some reason, as we're, we're having these random conversations as we drive, and we thought, huh, you know what would be fun? We should record a podcast. Yeah, well, so the, the trip is about four hours one way. Yeah. So it's a whole day trip uh, there. And actually, it was funny because the load up was uh, about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. They loaded the back of the truck, and then we were back on the road. So we're sitting on the road uh, having a lot of probably dumb conversations yeah but uh we thought it'd be good to uh chat about some of this stuff on a podcast episode yeah so we have uh, obviously as our special guest sitting in the jump seat here uh eden who came to offer some muscle and you know some maybe some intelligence to our conversations <laughs> so are we having fun eden yeah yeah, yeah. we all are uh we just stopped for lunch and some coffee and um we're headed back to Eastern Maine. So, um, why did we come this far, Josh? Yeah, so the story is, uh, basically, oh, here we go, now we're going on the road. Okay, so basically what was going on is we're closing in the house right now, and we're trying to figure out uh, the, the best way forward with the different materials, and, you know, I do have some old sheathing, uh, but we've done a lot of the, the old sheathing for the, um, the roof, required a lot of cleaning and sorting and careful handling and all sorts of stuff. Uh, a lot of the other sheeting that I have is either quite narrow or brittle with broken ends or whatever. So basically we just need some sheathing on the walls to be able to close this thing thing in permanently, you know, to, before the winter comes. Uh, also it's been having some rain coming in sideways still and it's just not tightened up yet. So we got to get the sheathing on the walls. Really super important. Um, right now, uh, my friend Ken is currently building the fireplaces. So he's working on the fireplaces. The chimney will be going up. So we got it's time to close in all these walls uh, nice and tight. In a quarter mile, so, turn right to stay <coughs> 122 east. In a quarter mile. There we go. Through. We're going to turn uh, right. So we were looking at sheathing costs, and we said, okay, you know, maybe the way to do this is to just get new sheathing boards rather than messing around with what is now left. Um, and so we were looking at different sheathing options and thinking through, um, you know, we have tar paper on the roof, which is not permanent. It's it, not it's, a, it's, you know, it can last a long time, but leaks find their way through it. Yeah. So there's that problem. And the other thing is we're planning this, you know, of course, at least has to get through the winter, but we're not going to be ready to put clapboards on in spring, right? So we're going to have these walls exposed to the weather for some time. Yeah. So, okay, if we're going to put sheathing on, maybe what we should do is, you know, forget the whole slap rough boards on and put tar paper and then patch the tar paper and then patch the tar paper right. and then patch the tar paper and worry about water leaking in and all this kind of stuff. Instead, we said maybe well, if we could find, if we could... Um, get some tongue and groove siding on it just to you know exterior sheathing but if it was tongue and groove then we could put it together it'd be watertight and we wouldn't even need any tar paper at all 
and it's interesting reading James Garvin's book about uh, New England building construction. Um, Garvin talks about uh, these what are called weatherboards. It's basically just sheathing, uh, the, the exterior sheathing. Now he was talking about how in older houses, sometimes when you strip away the old clapboards, you'll get down to the first layer of sheathing, and there's actually relatively aggressive weathering that you can see on the boards, which says, of course, that these this raw sheathing was exposed to the elements for some time before the actual uh, you know siding was put on, which of course makes sense. So it's it's interesting finding myself in that position and again saying, well. How do I, I just gotta put some boards on there and keep it tight for some time yeah. before I'm ready for clapboards and oh hey, I guess other people have been down this road before. Right. So uh, it's great that we have access now to you know so many different mills around who are producing all of this tongue and groove board relatively inexpensively. Also, um, if, if you're familiar with this, uh, I got V-match. So that means that the, the edge joint not only has a tongue and groove joint, but instead of the, the edges touching together, they're cut away, like they're chamfered. So it has this sort of V between. It's quite standard if you've seen, if you're aware of this. Um, but we're gonna be applying this, this sheathing horizontally with the tongues up, of course, with its, it's all V-match. So when rain is coming down, there's nowhere for it to get up over the tongue inside. It's all coming straight down. So all that to say, we said, hey, you know what? This would be the best use of our uh, time to, and, and the longest term, safest way to sheathe the building. So let's source this stuff. Let's figure out where we can get this. So I called uh, my local lumberyard, uh, you know, standard hardware store lumberyard to be able to get the materials. I got a price for those uh, boards to get delivered to us. It was a, it was a healthy price. Yeah, it was, it was... It was a pretty hefty price. It was steep, really steep. So, I, you know, we were thinking, okay, wow, well, if, if that's what it is, that's what it is, but let's see what else there, uh, we have. Uh, and Mike uh, had a lead or had some ideas. He talked to a friend who sourced some wood from yeah, another place. So, someone, a friend of mine who's a main guide, um, had found a place in um, kind of along the main New Hampshire border where he had bought some um, some pine shiplap, uh, which he had put on a cabin he built uh, whenever he had people coming to stay with him. And he said, yeah, the price was like half of what what you get at the hardware store. And so that, that got us thinking, maybe we should look around and find one of these, um, find one of these like local places where you're not dealing with either the big box store, which we don't, we try not to buy from anyway, or, or like kind all of, of the middlemen. Yeah, the middlemen. So we started looking around and we found uh, somebody in extreme western Maine who like had- on the border. On the border, yeah, like five minutes from New Hampshire, uh, who was selling this milled pine um, one by eight V-match uh, at a substantial savings. Yeah, it was like uh, the price he gave, it was saving me about five thousand dollars yeah. in sheathing, and which so is crazy. So, so you know, the question is always, well, so it's going to take. You know, we drive three and a half, four hours to get there, load up three and a half, four hours back. We're paying for fuel. We're paying for our time. Um, is that worth it? And obviously, at that that level, yeah, and, and, and a, a no-brainer. In a U-Haul, renting the U-Haul yeah, and right. all the 
the coordination with that. So it's funny because I actually called uh, the a different hardware store, this guy who has the U-Hauls, and I said, hey, Pete, it's your favorite U-Haul customer. Yeah. Because uh, especially with this project, I can't even tell you how many times I've rented a U-Haul for different trips. Moving uh, timbers. Moving timbers. And building materials. Which is a really great way to do this, by the way. If you're restoring an old house, uh, hauling bricks, hauling lumber. I actually... Uh, we all, yeah, that's right. We hauled, and hay. And hay for our goats. We rent a U-Haul for two big trips, 26-foot truck, to load up two of those with, with hay. Um, it's actually really, really great because you can rent this, rent this vehicle for a few hundred dollars for a day and compare that to, you know, how many trips a year would you make? Would you actually right. use a vehicle like that? Right, so if, let's say you do two or three of those trips a year, right? Total up the investment you have per year in that, in that kind of thing versus owning a big truck. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've told people I'm renting a U-Haul for moving some lumber and they say, oh, you should buy one of those trucks. Yeah, I'm like, you know what it would cost to buy one of those trucks and maintain them and do all the repairs and keep it registered and keep, I can just pay a few hundred dollars and rent a U-Haul. Right, and the maintenance is done for you. Like in, in this case, this U-Haul, uh, this is a pretty luxurious one. Uh, this is a brand new truck. It's got 30,000 miles on it. Um, the one that we rented in Iowa, if you listen to the, the previous podcast, number 65, we talked about um, handworks and how um, I picked up U-Haul outside Chicago and drove it north and picked up all our inventory and then drove back south. Uh, and then Eden and I rode in that one all the way to Iowa. And that one was, uh, it had a little more wear and tear on it. Uh, it's a pretty rough ride. The stereo was terrible, right? Um, this one is, is really quite nice. And so we, we have this brand new vehicle that we get to use for the day. And any wear and tear, whatever, is just eaten up in the cost of renting it. Um, so we don't really have to worry too much about that as long as we sweep it out at the end of the day. Uh, they're happy and we're happy. So, so so here's the thing with this though. Like if you're if you're building a house, you're building a, a larger, you know, say you build a workshop or whatever, and you need to source all this, a bunch of lumber, um, you know, call your local yard, uh, local yard, get the price for what they're selling, that kind of stuff for, and then jump around on the used markets, whether it's Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or, you know, whatever, uh, Uncle Henry's around here, uh, different places, and, and see what this stuff is going for. And what you'll find is there'll be these listings that are for, um, like, we got this sense, I don't even actually know the deal with this. Right. These guys are actually, they must be buying overstock or something. Yeah. Because they have different... Uh, bundles from different mills around. So. Yeah, it seems like somehow they must have an in with the local mills, and they're just they're like buying bulk from them or something. Yeah, it, you're right. It could be like overstock or something in this sawn lumber. And so I bought the bundle. Like yeah. you're not going in and buying you know a dozen boards. You're you're buying the bundle. Yeah. Um, but it saves a tremendous amount of money. And I there's there is no link I can put on you know in the uh, show notes for this podcast episode because they're all different. They're all over the place. Not just people who have connections and they have this kind of stuff, but they always put these listings on, you know, Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace and all those kind of places. Um, and those are great. Those are really uh, helpful. But we were quite nervous yeah. about doing this trip. Yeah. 
because we've we've had bad experiences. You can get burned doing it. Uh, without getting too into the details, you know, we'll, we'll keep it anonymous. Yeah. We went and did this, you know, wild goose chase to get some old hewn timbers from a guy who had a bunch of, a whole yard yeah. of timbers. He's like, excited. I've got everything you need. I gave him my whole list. I said, this is exactly what I need. Um, do you have these? And I'm driving three hours away, so I need to make sure the time is good and you're going to be there or whatever. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it all. It's great. And we got there, and it was just a yard full of green molding wood yeah. in the grass. Punky. Like, you could you could poke it with your finger and have a little bit of water squish out. Yeah. That's not exactly what you want for, uh, you know, for a solid structure. And he didn't have the stuff we were actually, yeah. that we needed. Um, and so it was just a, a really bummer of an experience because we walked away with basically nothing. There were, you know, a few two-by-fours we bought actually yeah. from him. But then we got back on the road and we had drove three hours back with basically an empty U-Haul. Yeah. So you can, you know, you can lose on that kind of thing. But, I mean, you really want to be careful with who you're communicating with and see, as, we, as we've done this kind of thing back and forth with people, the way that they communicate back is a good indication of yeah. how reliable they're going to be. Yeah. Uh, in this particular case, this guy was super communicative and had a lot of really specific and direct answers, was replying quickly, uh, and it seems like, okay, yeah, this is someone that seems good to work with. Yeah. Another thing to look for is um, if you're on a, a website, like a marketplace or something, where you can see their seller's rating, um, that's, a, you know, it's a valuable thing. I know there are a lot of, you know, you, you hear about these fake ratings on Amazon where basically the business pays people to, or, or they themselves just set up fake profiles to review uh, products, but it's it's harder to do when you're um, selling something on like a Facebook marketplace or something, especially when somebody has a bunch of reviews that are positive. That's a good sign. Um, I have bought things from people who have overwhelmingly negative reviews, and I went into it knowing that these people are sketchy, but I, I needed what they were building, you know, at the last minute kind of thing, and it works out in the end if you know what you're getting into. Um, but I, I did have recently, actually, a good friend who had tracked down this, what he thought was an awesome deal on some lumber. And um, he said he should have known this person had no reviews. He couldn't see their, their profile. This was on Facebook Marketplace. Um, and then the person required a deposit via Venmo before he could go... <laughs> And pick it up and he said the deal seemed so good and the guy in their brief correspondence seemed very nice and so he went ahead and did it and the guy gave him an address and he drove like an hour and a half and it was just an empty parking lot so he only lost like 70 bucks but still that's uh, the kind of thing that you're up against often when you when you try and do this sort of um, you know outside the mainstream sort of shopping when you're doing kind of be a not black market because there's nothing illegal about this, but you're you're just not doing the big box that everyone else is is uh, purchasing from, and at the same time they're they're paying a lot of markups for what they're buying. So, in that in that kind of category of sourcing that material, I mean it's, it's quite common for people to think like, oh, well, why don't you just find a local mill 
Find somebody, if you know someone who has a bandsaw mill, why don't you have them mill some stuff up for you? Now, there are so many different ways that can go wrong and, and not work out to your benefit. Um, you can have all this, this you know, you can, let's say you have a buddy with a bandsaw mill and they're milling stuff for you and you got it all stacked. First of all, whenever you're asking someone to do something on the side or you know, when they have a free weekend or whatever, you're going to be waiting forever to do it <laughs> right. because they all have to they have other stuff to do. So that kind of process, uh, it may work out, but it, it, you can just you you are uh, waiting on them to make sure, and you don't obviously want to uh, push too hard and, and burn them out. So that's a situation that a lot of people say, "Oh yeah, he's got a you know a, a bandsaw mill. You can just mill up." Some, I mean, these are just trees. You just cut them up. It's done. <laughs> But there's a reason that you pay for milled boards. It's a whole lot of work. Yeah. So if that's what you're, if that's the work you want to do, then there it is. Um, but the other problem is, let's say you have them all milled up and they're all stacked and stickered. Hopefully, the person who's milling them is going to sticker them properly, and it's all going to be done, you know, properly. There's a lot of waste that comes from those trees as well. So what you might be getting in a pile may not be optimal. You might have a bunch of live edge stuff in there that you now have to process and deal with. The other thing is, it's not gonna be dry. Yeah. So you're gonna have this pile of boards that are wet that you're gonna manually be stacking board by board by board. It's wet, it's got weighty edges, it's probably got some bug holes in it. Yeah. It's just, it's not graded at all. You're getting what you pay for, right? Right. And so that, while it seems tempting from a distance to try to go that path, only do that if you really don't have any money to do anything else and you have lots and lots of time and patience right? Because and, and the ability to do a lot of more processing because it's just a, a very, very uh, protracted way to do it. Yeah. So what we were looking for was something that was milled, tongue and groove, V-match, dried, ready to go so that we can just, you know, tomorrow morning, we're gonna start putting it on the building. It's ready to go. So those are some major considerations of that. We're working, starting with, with that first. We know what, what we need. And now it's just a question of what is the least expensive source for that uh, particular product. Yeah, and like in this day and age with um, internet resources and uh, even like forums and things and, uh, you know, even Facebook, which I, I hate Facebook. But there are some valuable aspects to it, and one of them is being able to track down some of these smaller, um, more uh, off-the-beaten-path kind of, uh, you know, mills and things like that. Where, you know, we're, we're based in eastern Maine. This place is in western Maine. They're not listed anywhere. They're not, you know, it's not like a business listing. We would have absolutely no way of finding them except for uh, their one listing they posted on Marketplace. So there are some advantages to that sort of um, uh, connection that you can find on even like a social media platform or something like that, where it, it's basically kind of a, a community marketplace. Uh, things like Craigslist are, are similar, though I've heard more and more kind of horror stories of transactions on Craigslist. Uh, there are more and more scams and, and things going on, so um, 
you always just have to be on your on the lookout, on your guard, and, and try and have uh, some strategy in mind for uh, making sure that, that the transaction will work out, and making sure that the people that you're um, basically contracting with, you know, when you you strike a deal over text message, you know, there's you don't have much to fall back on if that falls through. So yeah, you just and, have to be aware of your risk and be really clear up front about the terms of the sale and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so we live in rural Maine. So for us, close and local is like two hours is no big deal. We'll just drive over two hours to pick up some stuff if we have to because we're so rural. Not We really wouldn't think twice about it. So for us to drive these four hours, okay, yeah, that's it's not next door, but we could do it. It's not a big deal. Right. So, you know, for some people, you know, if you, if you think half an hour is a really far drive, then... You have to adjust your paradigm for this kind of hunting. Um, but if you are going two, four hours, something like that, you got to be really clear about your terms and what what they're expecting, what you're expecting, uh, because you don't want to get all that all that way and then realize that didn't work out. So uh, I have learned <laughs> to always bring cash. Um, right, 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 right. In, in Maine, people are pretty low key, and you can. A lot of people don't care about checks, but I got burned on that once and had to go drive around finding an ATM because the guy would not yeah, take the my ATM, check. The closest ATM was like, what, an hour away or something? Yeah, it was like 40 minutes or something. That did not work out. So always have cash. And so what I always do is I bring the exact amount of cash that was discussed in an envelope ready so it can just be handed. They'll, I double check it. They count it. There it is. Then I also bring extra cash in my wallet in case there's some other reason I need more cash for, you know, yeah. he says, oh, hey, I'll throw this in for another hundred bucks. And, oh, yeah. oh, okay. You know, be ready for that. But then I also have a blank business check with me just in case there's some reason that, you know, a check is needed and I have my cards. So those kinds of things, being ready for that, always having with you um, some ratchet straps, uh, some different means to be able to tie things down and be ready because these situations are always so uh, unique. The last time I did this, I went down to get some big 8 by timbers for the, the house restoration and I drove three hours down to this guy who was actually, this is the best situation, he was a, a friend of my friend's who's done this kind of work and he said, talk to this guy, he's the guy you want to talk to, he's got tons of it, his whole family's into this stuff he's got what you need so I felt really good about the contact and then got down there and saw the timbers he sent pictures of them which was great um, they're exactly what I needed um, but it was one of those situations that he had you know he said he had all the braces that I needed for these timbers uh, for the posts so I got there and then he had a big pile of stuff that was uncovered that I he and I were digging through all of these wet timbers to try to find all the braces we needed for this particular thing and um, and then he said hey and I, I actually asked him I said hey do you have any connections to uh, old sash windows because I heard from my friend that you might have a lead and he said actually right upstairs here I'll take you up and show you and he had this huge stack of uh, uh, it would be like 12 over 12s uh, that he was saying you know I picked these up a while back I was intending to use them but I'm not going to use them if you could use them I'd be willing to sell them to you 
And so that was the, exactly the kind of situation I was in. I said, okay, I have these big timbers sticking out the back of the U-Haul. I have the, the whole thing ratcheted down. I, I planned for all that. And now this guy's offering me these sash windows that are maybe, maybe perfect for my house. And it's three hours away. It's like right. now or never. Yeah. Really, I mean, I could come back next week, but ultimately those particular windows didn't end up working out for what I needed, but those are exactly the kinds of situations you will always walk into. There's always something you don't anticipate, yeah. an opportunity or some hurdle or problem that you're like, what? You know, he said there were, you know, uh, four, I think I needed six timbers or something, and I got there and a few of them were on the bottom of the stack and they were all like rotted down there. Okay. <laughs> Glad I didn't need those because that would have been a problem. Yeah. So, uh, with a lot of these kinds of projects, uh, you get to meet a lot of really interesting people, uh, wood hoarders, <laughs> and people with uh, a lot of interesting stuff. But they're really great connections to make, and yeah. you can get a really good deal. Yeah, and another part of it is, I mean, when you are able to. Um, find a, a way to get the kind of savings that we are getting on this trip, right? Like in the thousands of dollars, uh, you can justify um, really kind of having a fun time of it, if that makes sense. Like we're driving and we say, okay, let's, we're going to stop at some local cafe and get some coffee and some, some snacks. And that's just a fun thing to do to stop in these towns you know, go through these towns you've never been in and uh, stop at these little bakeries or these little places and, and just, you know, see what's going on in that tiny little town of, you know, 600 people. Um, it, it, it offers, you know, more than just the, uh, uh, the, the practical getting building materials. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said for uh, taking a road trip. It's just fun to do. And yeah. You also get to have random conversations if you bring friends along. Oh, yeah. And so, Joshua, we're coming up on a toll. Oh, a toll. Can I have some money? Yeah, hold on. So, we're on the main turnpike, and they, they it's literally highway robbery. Um, <laughs> literally? Especially, I will say, when you rent a U-Haul, you're going to pay a little bit more. Uh, we're still cash people up here. I know most of you in the rest of the U.S. are like, what do you mean you pay cash for tolls? Like, can you even still do that anymore? Yes, you can. You come to Maine and you can pay cash for your toll. Yeah, we don't want to be tracked by Easy Pass, so yeah. we're just, we're cash. We're cash. So, uh, so uh, we go through the toll booth and they tell us how much we owe and we get to say hi to the friendly people working in the booth. Yeah. It's it's really nice. So I need a buck seventy-five. Actually, it'll be no, more no, than It'll that. be two sixty-five, I think. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the whole trip, well, I mean, you know, when it's when it's Mike and me on the road, we're talking through a lot of business stuff. Anyways, um, so much of what we're doing is is sorting through the next blog post stuff, and we're talking about um, the apprenticeship uh, program coming up, or you know, ins and outs of customer communication, that kind of thing. Um, there is so much uh, conversation that happens on the road that is so fruitful that continues into the next project. If you're doing creative work or you're talking about this kind of stuff on the road, you can really, um, I think a lot of those conversations we've had have been, the, the fruit has, has been bearing further into the future. A lot of times 
you know, what our day-to-day work is like is, I mean, we'll have some conversation, but a lot of it is head down, uh, head scratching, trying to solve some, some problems to figure out this, uh, you know, construction project. But when we're doing this kind of uh, in the car, sitting and talking, we can catch up on a lot of this uh, necessary conversation that has to happen. Oh, right, at all. 450. 440. Hi there. Hi. Thank you, Thank you. very much. Have a good one. As a sweet lady. Okay, so. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What have we been talking about on this trip? We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, goodness. And yeah. we actually even planned the next podcast episode, which is probably too complicated. Yeah, we, we to have even... to have an outline for that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've been uh, talking about pine trees and <laughs> how, how ironic, like, uh, Eden saw one place that was like Camp Cedar or something and their sign was made out of a white birch and so we said, well, people don't really care, it's just a tree, right? A tree is a tree. Uh, so yeah, that got us down the rabbit hole of talking about making careful observations which we'll probably probably do in the future as a, a whole podcast of its own. Yeah. But one of the things that we observed uh, well, it was so interesting to see uh when we come down this path that we're coming, every time I come down this way, it's so surreal. Uh, in Maine, we do not have any uh, billboards. We have a billboard van, which is awesome. so great. Yeah, I highly recommend it to all of you other states out there. Yes. Uh, get rid of all those billboards. It's terrible. Uh, so we don't have billboards. So I'm so used to you know what we're the drive we're doing right now is just beautiful trees, uh, and it's. it's we're on a highway, but it's a really low-key drive. Um, it's, so it's always, a, it's always beautiful scenery. But when uh, the past, I don't know, in the past year, I guess it's Yeah, a year or two years. When we're starting to take this drive down, all of a sudden there are these swaths of trees that are cut away or what used to be a farm yeah. that is now just a field, huge field of solar panels. Yeah. And they're everywhere now. Yeah. And it's so interesting because what uh, the way the marketing has been is that it's it's local green power. Right. So it's been an interesting thing because I you know I have a lot of friends in the farming community and we've had these uh, forever chemicals, these PFAS chemicals that were discovered and these farmers got basically their farms got shut down. Yeah, they're finding unsafe levels of these forever chemicals in the produce that they're making, even on organic farms. And so they're saying, oh, well, you can't sell your produce anymore. And then basically that means that their land is is worthless to them as agricultural land. So uh, what the, the trend is that then these solar firms are coming in and buying up the land at a fraction of what it was worth and then they're putting in massive solar farms, uh, which is a very, very interesting series of events. Yeah. So it's just, I think the thing about it that's been so peculiar to me or what's standing out is, as I mentioned earlier, the, the big push is that it, this is local power. It's local green power. And it's so strange to me to have this local community uh, Know, be what it is and to have this these stable farms and you know you have these family farms growing food for the community 
displaced by big plastic uh, 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 like fields of plastic panels yeah. to be able to absorb this solar energy to create this uh, only by wiping them out. Right. It's, it's such a surreal sight, and it's 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 a little ominous feeling. I, yeah. I think. And the one thing that we are talking about, Joshua, that you had mentioned, someone told you about, um, you know, this land is no longer, uh, apparently, no longer useful for agriculture because of those forever chemicals. And then um, in order to maintain the, the low level of vegetation around these solar panels, because obviously if you have a solar panel field and uh, the weeds are growing up and blocking it, that's not efficient. So they're they're basically spraying, you know, poisonous chemicals to keep the vegetation down in these fields of solar panels. That's just so green. It seems so ironic. You know, <laughs> you basically say, well, this land is no longer fit for producing food. So now we're going to take it and produce electricity and make sure it is no longer uh, viable for any living thing to grow well. So we're going to yeah. keep hosing it with toxic chemicals so that we can keep producing electricity. Now, I mean, it's interesting to think about when you're producing uh, produce, you, you know, this is essentially a solar-powered operation, right? Corn is absorbing um, the sunlight, it's converting it into sugars, and you're getting, you're getting actual food, right? It is, it is a solar production kind of thing, which uh, in the case of a lot of our small-town agriculture, it's not going to some central place. A lot of it is going to local farmers markets and stuff like that. Um, here in Maine, we have this bizarre tradition. We're talking about it because we came through the town of Poland. A lot of you have probably heard of Poland Springs. So it's uh, bottled water from Maine. The company's owned by Nestle and they sell Poland Springs water all around the world. It's water taken from Maine bottled up in plastic bottles and shipped all over the world. And they use Maine as kind of a marketing angle, right? So it's like Maine spring water. It's like, can you imagine more pure than that? <laughs> but a lot of people in Maine are like, why are we allowing the use of not only our our resource, the water, but also of our of who we are, our image. Like the, the, the vision of Maine is pristine and rural and clean. And we're letting Nestle, or, or any company really for that matter, um, market that to sell their product. And so a lot of the um, the controversy be behind these solar farms that have been popping up is that it's not even really used um, within the local grid because Maine does not have electrical grid, grid problems. We don't have like rolling brownouts or anything. We, we barely use air conditioners in the summertime, right? And in the winter, people heat with things like wood or um, non-electrical uh, heat sources. So it's not like Maine's grid is pinched. Maine actually has a very high percentage of renewable energy. It's primarily hydroelectric. Um, but all these solar places are coming in and what they're doing is they're propping up the New England grid, which is actually basically Boston, right? It's the major cities. So our, the main land is being taken and utilized for uh, the places that actually do have grid problems, such as Boston and some of the bigger cities further south. 
So a lot of people in Maine, uh, I, you know, I would say rightly so, are, you know, putting their hands up and going, why are we doing this? You know, why, what is our aim here? We're, we're leasing or selling this land with very, very little benefit to the state of Maine to, um, to prosper these big electrical companies who are selling electricity to Boston. Um, and it, it, it's, it's kind of a, like I was saying, it's kind of a bizarre trend in Maine that a lot of our, some of our, like for example, a lot of our, um, our paper mills have shut down we're no longer making much paper, and a lot of our forestry products are being cut on the stump, and they're being sold to, like, Canadian mills. So, we're no longer even using our own trees. They're getting cut down and sent across the border to Canada to be milled and sold. Uh, oftentimes, that returns to Maine, whoops, returns to Maine uh, in a big box store. Right? So now you're paying a premium for lumber that's cut in Maine, sent to Canada to be milled, and then it comes back to some big box store in like the Midwest or something. And so it's a very strange uh, system where our local resources are not really helping the local economy. And there are a lot of, you could almost say ghost towns in northern Maine that were once prosperous because of those resources. For 25 years. For, yeah. And now they're just they're just empty and full of poverty. So uh, that's some of what we were discussing on our trek west here. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you know being able to learn about these kinds of stories. Every every region, every area, I'm sure, has all sorts of deep history and stories about the interactions of uh, people who are doing work and different industries that have come in and all sorts of different. Uh, traditions of work in, in that area, um, but if you're working on a project, let's say you're building a you know a workshop, and your whole your your only frame of reference is get in a, a you know, big order from the, the box store or have something all delivered to you, all of that is going to be removed from your experience. You're not going to be able to learn about the past. You're not going to be able to get to know those small towns uh, where you live and be able to meet those people who have been doing this for 50, 60 years. Yeah. I mean, it really is common to, yeah. you're meeting people who's been, some guy's been milling for 60 years. Yeah. And so, that's, that's who you're buying from. That, Think about 60 years of wisdom and skill that he's able to, you know, share with you and, and exemplify. Uh, it's, it's a very, very different paradigm. Uh, from you know, just getting yeah, thinking in terms of how can I have this dropped off as inexpensively as possible. Yeah, and so Joshua, you and your family just talked to a guy yesterday who's he's kind of our firewood guy. Yeah. Um, both Joshua's and my family's every couple years we buy uh, eight cord of tree length firewood, and we process we cut it up at home and split it, and um, that's our our heat source. But we have to buy that every few years. And so this year we bought from a place, uh, and their driver uh, is retiring this year. Again? And yeah, again. This is the second time he's tried to retire. Um, but he is this awesome old-school Mainer, right? And he's been driving trucks in the Northwoods, delivering firewood for, you know, how long? A long time, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so he, he has all kinds of stories about things he's seen and things he's done and 
you know, bringing pulp logs across from the Northwoods, and uh, he is quite a character. And so he is retiring when officially? Tomorrow. Tomorrow is his <laughs> last day uh, on the job, and he's, I guess, moving back south, right? That's what he, he tried to do. Okay, yeah. He moved down to be with family in, like, the Carolinas or something like that. And then this place that he worked for um, reached out to him because he comes back to Maine from time to time in the summer because he has family here. And uh, they said, hey, when you're back, would you consider driving for us, you know, a couple days a week? Because we can't get anybody who's anywhere near as good as you. Because he's not just bringing the firewood, but he's operating the grapple. And so he's like an artist with this thing. He can yeah. pick up a load of logs and spin it around and thread it through between the trees. Um, the place that he drops the wood for us is kind of partway down our driveway. It's in between some trees and it's pretty tight, but it's not a problem for him. He can just weave that firewood, the, those, you know, 20 some odd foot lengths of, of tree length firewood and just set them like an artist. Uh, so he came back and worked for them a few days a week and it ended up being, what, five more years yeah. that he's been with them. Five days a week and then five more years. Yeah, five, it became five days a week and then five more years. So now he's actually looking to retire again. This this time it might be for real. Um, he said but, he has a lot of hunting and fishing yeah, to do. Yeah. And his buddy's building a couple garages that he needs some help with. That's, <laughs> nice. his, that's his That's plan. retirement. Uh, so it's it's those are the kinds of people that you get to interact with when you... Uh, when you go kind of the back route for, for getting the supplies and the, uh, the goods that you need, um, you get to meet people like that. So that, that's kind of the story of, of this trip, I think. Yeah. Maybe the moral of the story. Wild goose chases are worth it. Yeah. And uh, one other thing is that now we, we've gotten off the main turnpike. We're now on uh, Route 3 Route in three. Augusta. Yep. Which brings us perilously close to a Lib certain location. Liberty Tool Company. The Liberty Tool Company. Oh, man. We are stopping, right? We can stop for a little bit. I think we can stop for a few minutes. Yeah. Yay. So Yeah. So we'll stop at Liberty, uh, see what's going on over there, see what they have in stock. If you haven't been to Liberty Tool Company, uh, I don't know why. You're missing out. What are you doing? you got to get up to Liberty, Maine and check out Liberty Tool Company before they close. Um, because it could be any time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a three-story building in small town Liberty, Maine, uh, with all these antique tools. I would say 90% of my tools come from, from Skip is the guy who owns it. So Skip, or he has two other stores as well. Um, that's where we get all our tools. So, um, yeah, we are, that's the other thing. It's like, we have a U-Haul now. Yeah, we, we're so here I, at Liberty <laughs> with a big truck. And lots I mean, of cash. And you brought a business and cash. And I just told you about bringing extra cash. Yeah. And there are antiques stores all the way. Yeah. So, I don't know, man. The day Whoa. the day is young. We the still day have is time. ours. We <laughs> must take, grab it by the horns. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I don't know. Is there anything else that we should talk about on this podcast episode? I... I, solar farm. There's a big oh, solar farm. Look at that solar farm. Wow. Oh, so beautiful. I can see the electrons just popping up everywhere. Oh, Isn't man. that a nice, beautiful field of plastic? 
It is. Yeah. So, on wow. that note, those on nasty that... cows out of there. <laughs> yeah, those dirty cows are gone. That's good. All right. all right. Well, thank you all for listening to this interesting episode of the Mortis and Tenon podcast. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, you can do so wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we love to read your comments, especially the positive ones. So uh, leave a comment, leave a review, uh, and get in touch with us, and we'll, uh, we'll respond. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.